0: Hello, I'm Joey Newton. I'll be reading from Acts 2, verses 43 through 47. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. you. It's good to be with you this morning. We go to the Word, Acts chapter 2. Join with me as we pray. Father, we have gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the one who died in our stead, the one whom you raised from the dead, the one who is seated and reigning as sovereign Lord. We thank you that as we gather to worship, That you, by your Spirit, are in our midst. And you come to open our eyes and our understanding to receive your word. And you come among us to change us. And we pray today that your word, as it has been faithfully proclaimed in this place for so long, now even in these few moments we have together, that your word would bear fruit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Acts chapter 2, you know, of course, that this is the follow-up to Peter's uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost. And there's something very natural happening here. Uh, Those who received the word, verse 41 says, Those who received the word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And this is what they did. They were continually devoting themselves to to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Doesn't sound out of the ordinary, does it? Sounds just kind of natural. And the text that Joy read a moment ago, verses 43 to 47, where we'll give our attention, help us to understand what it's like to be the body of Christ. Now, just hours before Jesus' death, he let the disciples know that his suffering on their behalf would cause something massive to happen. Yes, their sins were going to be forgiven, but something massive was going to happen to them corporately. By his death and by his resurrection, the Holy Spirit would come to dwell not just in them individually, but in them and in the church corporately throughout the ages. So the one who redeemed us from sin, the one who freed us from fear of death, has given to us, to the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit, to mark us as the people of God. Now, the book of Acts is really a commentary on this, because it shows own and own and own, how the people of God were marked by the Holy Spirit, and not just those people that we read about in the book of Acts, but all of those who through the ages have believed that same apostolic gospel. And and so we, we see how the Holy Spirit is testifying in the people of God, those redeemed by Jesus Christ, of how Jesus has worked his life in us and how he worked his life out of us, marking us as being the people of God. Now, what does it look like for the church to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, some people think of the church like joining a a club or some kind of social organization or society, but the book of Acts insists that being Christians gathered into a local church means that the Lord marks us as his people. He marks us corporately. He affects us, not just one here and one there. He affects us who are the redeemed of the Lord. That's what makes us a Christian church. It's not the sign out front. It's not the affiliation with the denomination. It is the life of Jesus work in the people of God gathered in the body of Christ called the church. And the more we see that, the deeper our sanctification goes. The more our understanding of what it is to really walk with Christ. Uh, uh, During college, I've Served in a church down on the Alabama coast, and they had some really nice people. But spiritually, the church was cold, it was really cold. And I was, you know, saw this church. They they kind of checked all the boxes. They, you know, they had Sunday school, they had worship service, they had a youth group, they had vacation Bible school, all the kind of things that you expect. But there were few signs of life about them, and I remember. This godly, older lady was so burdened, she just prayed and prayed, and sometimes she and I got together, and we prayed that the Lord would do something in this church that was so cold and so dry and so dusty spiritually. And a short while later, I took a few teenagers on a retreat. Now, how few? They all fit into my VW Bug. So that'll tell you how few there were that really had any kind of interest But while we were there, there was one 15-year-old young man that came to faith in Christ. He was a very quiet kid. He testified of knowing the Lord. We baptized him. And it began to get the church's attention. And before long, his oldest brother and sister-in-law came to faith in Christ. And they were baptized as well. And then there was another friend in the community that came to faith in Christ. And her husband, who'd been in the military, hadn't been back too long... He came to faith in Christ, and then others followed, and then there were dozens that the Lord in his mercy saved, and the church changed. The coldness was swept away by the warmth of these testimonies of the new birth. The the worship, the preaching, the disciple-making was changed. Members hungered for the word, and they served one another, and members began to spur one another to love and good deeds. The Spirit had breathed new life into this church. And finally, after years of of just coldness and lethargy, the church was marked by Jesus' life through the Spirit. You see, what this passage teaches us, and what we'll consider this morning, is that the, the body of Christ experiences real life only by the work of the Spirit in those that Christ redeems. But what does that body life look like? That's what I want us to think about in four marks of a church. The first one is this. The Holy Spirit is present. The Holy Spirit is present. If there's one thing that we must long to see fully evident in our congregations, it is this. That the Holy Spirit is present in our corporate life. That God, the eternal spirit, is present among us. For the Holy Spirit is that same Spirit that Jeremiah talks about that fulfills the new covenant promises. He is that one that writes God's law on our hearts and that applies the redemptive work of Christ in the forgiveness of sins. He is the one that indwells us. This is the same thing that Peter was preaching about concerning. Joel's prophecy 700 years before Peter's sermon that we read in Acts chapter 2 of the coming of the Spirit in unusual power. And Peter preached the gospel and on that day about 3,000 exercised repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and they evidenced it by confessing their faith in believer baptism that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord in their lives. So here were these 3,000 new believers. They were new to the faith. They needed to be taught. They needed to be discipled. They were hungry to hear more about Jesus. They were affected by the love that each one had for one another. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were enjoying the fellowship of brothers and sisters. They were uh, celebrating meals together. They were enjoying having food together. They were celebrating the meal, the Lord's Supper, together. They were praying together. And all this is happening formally and informally. I mean, what a sight! But the same way that it happened in their ch- church and that gathering is the same thing the Spirit keeps doing in our day. I mean, you, you think about this. The Holy Spirit for them and for us, attends the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He convicts of sin. Uh, Luke says they were pierced to the heart when they heard the gospel of Christ. He regenerates. He brings us to life. He brings us out of deadness into life so that we see the gospel, we hear the gospel, and maybe we realize we're hearing the gospel in a completely new way because the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes. He's regenerated us. And we respond in repentance and faith. And in doing so, when that happens, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, not just individually. He does that. Thanks be to God. That is Christ in you, the hope of glory, as Paul says in Colossians 1. But he comes to indwell the body corporately. And as he indwelled the church, the church was marked by the Spirit's life. Now, notice... A couple of ways that we see this. First, in a God, there was a God-conscious atmosphere. You'll notice in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Now, the the language indicates this was an ongoing thing. They kept, Luke is looking back, and he says, they just kept feeling it and kept feeling it. They kept sensing it. There was this, this sense of a holy fear. There was a sense of reverence. There was this God consciousness that they felt. And it wasn't just the church that felt it. It was the people in Jerusalem. And we we know that as we read something of the narrative, don't we? So Luke is indicating the whole city was kind of seeing something that was happening among these people that the Lord God was making himself known in them and among them. You see, the world may not be interested and they may not be appreciative. But when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ lives in the life of the Spirit, they can't help but notice it. And sometimes the world reacts negatively. I I was with a friend of mine this week and some other pastors, and his church started about 15 years ago. They've been meeting in a public building. And he told us, he said, for the last eight years, we've been living in this uh, meeting in this building. And he said, every week, he said, every week for the last eight years, people have trashed outside and they have trashed inside the building because they knew when Sunday came, we would have to meet for worship and we'd have to clean it up. Eight years. Well, those people knew something was going on, they didn't like it, they reacted. And we see the world doing that, don't we? But sometimes, like we see in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit opens people's eyes and they see the Lord God at work and they recognize the power of the gospel and there is conviction of sin and they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this God-conscious atmosphere. Second, there are God-wrought actions. Now, we've got to understand that just like what happened at the cross... What happened on the day of Pentecost is unique. This is the Spirit of God coming in power as Jesus told the disciples in John 14, 15, and 16. This is what he had uh, promised. This is what the prophets had foretold, what Joel had talked about in Joel chapter 2. And so Pentecost itself was not a repeatable event because this was the coming of the kingdom of God in power. This was the fulfilling of the new covenant promises That this is the work of God saving people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and the Spirit of God bringing them together. And so we read again in verse 43 and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And so we see traces of this massive work of, of God's Spirit through miraculous signs that were continuing to operate in that early New Testament period. And and part of the reason this was happening is so that those Jews that got converted would not become smug and saying, hey, this is just for us. No, it wasn't just for them. You get to Acts chapter 8, and you have what is often called the Samaritan Pentecost because the Spirit of God came in great power on the Samaritans, these people that the Jews despise. And then you see it later in Acts chapter 10 in Caesarea uh, with Cornelius, the, the Roman and the Spirit of God came on them in the same way. And then you see it in the in what is sometimes called the Ephesian Pentecost in Acts chapter 19. If we in ancient Asia Minor on the uh, western coast of modern-day Turkey. The Spirit of God came in great saving power among those Gentiles. And in each one of them, it was demonstrating that Samaritans, Romans, and Gentiles were included in the promises of God. Back in the Old Testament, that changes the way we read Scripture, doesn't it? Instead of having a dividing mark, we end Malachi and get to Matthew. Okay, there's that old book. No, that old book is pointing to the new book. That new book is pointing back to the old book. There's, we're seeing the seamless work of the living God in great mercy. And so here, the purpose of these many wonders and signs by the apostles' hand was never to draw attention to them. You know, one thing that we see in the book of Acts, or maybe one thing we don't see, is the apostles saying, we're going to have a big crusade, and we're going to do a bunch of signs and wonders. They didn't do anything like that. They didn't set up a -a miracle-a-day event. Instead, they were doing what Jesus told them they would do. They would continue his work with this unique ministry they had. They would bear testimony... To the Lord Jesus and to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, and they would demonstrate that this new gospel was not new at all. It was the same thing that God promised in Genesis 3:15 that the serpent would, uh, would bruise the heel of, uh, of Adam and Eve's descendant, but he would crush the serpent 's head. There's the cross. And so, here is this fulfillment. Now, while we may not see the concentrated wonders and, and signs uh, in our day with the continuation, uh, w- without the continuation of the apostles, we do see the power of God at work. We, we see things happening to us. I, I would imagine there are some people here, and you've had some maybe serious diseases, and, and the Lord has been merciful, and, and He's healed you. I mean, others, he's just taken on to glory. He's given them eternal healing. Uh, there are lives that are changed. There are addicts that are delivered. There are stubborn sin habits that have been broken. There are wrecked families that have been restored. There are weak, helpless, struggling believers like us that have continued enduring in the faith. There are churches planted in hard places. There are missionaries who are working to expand the gospel. There are Christians living joyously in the middle of persecution. I was just with a brother from Russia a couple of weeks ago, and he came to the U.S. for a, a gathering, a, a conference, and he said, when I went to the airport, I didn't take a bag with me because I thought I was going to get arrested. I mean, he literally didn't take anything with him. He had to borrow clothes when he got, when he got to, uh, to this conference And he said, I'm really expected to get arrested. Why? Because he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you do that? I mean, signs and wonders? It is for me. I see something like that, and I'm awed and I'm humbled to see the work and power of God. I mean, how do you explain that except that Christ has come, and he's indwelling his people, and he's enabling us to... Live life in Him. And so the Holy Spirit is certainly present with a God-consciousness and God-wrought action. But second, we see a lively unity in this passage. And I use the adjective lively because I think that helps us to capture something of this brief description in verses 44 and 45. And all who had believed were together and had all things in common, and as they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Uh, F.F. Bruce, a wonderful uh, late uh, New Testament scholar, said this phrase translated were together became a quasi-technical term in the New Testament for they were in church fellowship. Uh, It expressed this inherent unity that is found in the church because of the common bond that we have in the gospel of Jesus, this blood-bought bond, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I mean, even these young believers that had come from varied backgrounds and different cultural influences, when they heard the gospel of Christ, when they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they were united by the Holy Spirit, and the barriers that had separated them collapsed And Christian love became evident. And and we see this in a couple of very distinct ways in this text. First, there is a lively unity in what we believe. Again, lively. Not a dead unity. Something that's living, something that's vibrant. And so, this is the first place in, in this passage that those in the church are called the believers, the believing ones. And it points to... this uh, this lively unity we have in the person of Jesus Christ. What are we believing? I mean, the church is not people that have gathered together who just believe some religious things. No, the church, the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ are those who believed in the person of Christ, the God-man, the God who became, the eternal God who became a man, who became a human being, and in our place, suffered on our behalf, at the cross, and rose from the dead. And so we believe in Him, and we believe in this body of truth known as the gospel that declares who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And, and so as the church comes together, it's not a gathering of people who have their own ideas of what to believe. No, they came together. They came together because they believed this apostolic gospel, the same apostolic gospel that we believe that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried. And on the third day, according to that same scripture, he was raised from the dead. We believe that. We believe, as Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 2, that God delivered Jesus over to the cross. We can say the Jews crucified Jesus, the Romans crucified Jesus, but often we have to say God the Father did. God the Father delivered him over. He was delivered over by the predetermined plan and eternal purpose of God so that on the cross, Jesus might die an atoning death, a death that covered our sin, a substitutionary death, a death on our behalf. And then God would raise him from the dead, for as Peter said, it was impossible for him to be held in death's power. And this Jesus is the one that the early church believed for their whole being. Have you believed him? Have you really trusted him? You see, they agreed together and trusted in this same Jesus revealed in the gospel. Now, the point of disunity in many churches and having pastored for 44 years, I've seen a little bit of that along the way. I've seen a lot of that along the way. And the point of the disunity often begins right with this very thing, that the people aren't united about the gospel. They have their own ideas of what it is to get to God. They have their traditions. They have their culturally shaped concepts about Jesus instead of believing, as, as Jude says, this once-for-all faith delivered to the saints by the apostles. Instead of believing this biblical gospel, they just believe whatever they want to believe, and they call it Christian, and it's not. You see, the gospel, this biblical gospel, is foundational for everything. Your unity as a congregation rests upon God's revelation of Christ in the gospel. If we're united in the gospel, we can work through the quirks among us, and we all have our quirks, we, we can work through those if we're united in the gospel. And your unity rests upon God's revelation of Christ in this gospel. And so we're only believers in the New Testament sense if we believe this apostolic gospel. And this belief affects our behavior. That's the second thing we see. There's a lively unity in what we believe. There's a lively unity in how we live. You'll notice again in verses 44 and 45. These believers were together. Here's this picture. They were were the church. They were gathered as the church. They had all things in common demonstrating that the church cared for one another. Haven't you seen those churches where people really don't care for one another? Wasn't that a problem in Corinth that Paul had to address in 1 Corinthians 11? He had to rebuke them because they weren't really caring for one another. And and this is further noted when he says in verse 45, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. This is where we get really uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, these folks went crazy. They were selling stuff. I think it's fascinating that while Luke could have talked about any number of characteristics on how their faith affected their behavior, Instead, he talked about their generosity. That their generosity marked them as being followers of Christ. I I was reading in my devotion time this morning, 2 Corinthians 9, 13, and Paul was saying the, the same sort of thing, that it is generosity that becomes an affirmation that the faith that we have in Jesus Christ is a real faith. In other words... A stinginess, a selfishness, a greediness is not evidence of the life of Christ. And and so they were selling property and selling possessions. And the Aussie scholar David Peterson says that the sharing of possessions was voluntary and occasional. And he adds, here was no primitive form of communism, but a generous response to the particular problems in their midst. I mean, even the verb... Selling implies they were selling, they, they sold from time to time. And, and you know, a little bit later in Acts chapter 4, Barnabas had a piece of property and he sold it. But there were other people that had pieces of property and they didn't sell it. And that was fine. It was good. As a matter of fact, the church met in their homes. We read that later in Acts chapter 12. And so, having property and possessions were seen as a stewardship before the Lord in the case of the early church many of these people were living on the edge of poverty and their generosity toward one another demonstrated uh, who they were by the way they were living among one another as followers of the infinitely generous Lord Jesus Christ and you see this later on Acts chapter 6 the the serving of food to the uh, to the widows, they had, they had a kerfuffle going on there at the beginning of Acts chapter 6, but they, they addressed it, but the church was, was serving. Uh, you see it later on in Acts chapter 13 through 18, where the church at Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas and supported them in mission work. And here's the reality with this early church rightly being viewed as a model for, our, for all New Testament churches that evidence of their lively unity uh, was found in the way they gave generously. Uh, giving their resources simply was an extension, or as, as Paul says in Second uh, Corinthians 9, it, it was a proof. It was a definitive proof of the work of Christ in their lives. They battled greed and selfishness and unconcern by developing practices of giving. And this kind of generosity resembles the Lord's generosity. One of the the ways that the Lord really worked assurance in my life as a a young Christian is I wanted to give. I didn't care about giving before then. And I wanted to give. It, It really changed me. It affected me. And that generous heart, like that of Christ, is a barometer of Christian character in our walk with Christ. And and this is where we show concern for gospel work. We show concern for the local church. We show show concern for global missions. We show concern for caring for one another uh, through our giving as an evidence of our unity in the gospel. And that unity happens in relationships so that we strengthen one another to live as followers of Jesus Christ and to help one another in times of need and serve one another in the spirit of Christ and unite our voices together in passionate worship and join one another in the, the work of missions across the globe. Unity is evident when it can be said of us and all of those continuing to believe we're together. They were in church fellowship and they had all things in common there's a third mark. Not only do we see this uh, sense of uh, of God consciousness, this fear of the Lord, not only do we see this unity, this lively unity, but we also see single-mindedness. Now, single-mindedness doesn't mean unthinking uniformity. We maybe have reacted to single-mindedness because we've seen it in legalism. You know what legalism does? It bends everybody Uh, into the same shape. Everybody has to have the same ticks and the same nods and and use the same buzzwords and they never veer from groupthink. But single-mindedness is about diverse people united in Jesus Christ and dwelled by the Holy Spirit, unified around the gospel and holding one great passion. I love what Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf said uh, back in the 18th century, he was the founder of Hernhut, which was a Moravian Brethren group. If you read anything about missions, you're going to read about uh, von, uh, Count von Zinzendorf because these Moravian Brethren were, were on the cutting edge of missions. And this, this is what von Zinzendorf said. I have one passion. It is he. It is He alone. That's what we see in this church. I have one passion. This single-mindedness is a congregation with one passion for Jesus Christ. It is a passion to love Him and serve Him and enjoy Him and worship Him and follow Him. Is that your passion? We, We need a good spiritual soul check on that, don't we? Is Jesus Christ your one passion? Well, notice what Luke writes in verse 46. Day by day, continuing, here it is, with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. This single-mindedness worked out in four ways. First, it worked out in gathering, in gathering. The body of Christ love to gather together. So day by day, continuing expresses this sense of regularity with the church. When you read through the book of Acts, you realize that the church's existence was not found on paper. It was found in their gathering. As a matter of fact, that's what the word church means. It is the assembly. It is those who are called out together. The word is used in Uh, secular Greek, the the word ekklesia is sometimes translated simply as an assembly. So we really don't even have a church apart from our being together and our gathering together. And some might certainly be away because they're involved in ministry or, or they have physical or work hindrances, but the normal expression of the church is our gathering together. And so he says they continued gathering with one mind in the temple. Now they didn't have a building. They met in this place called Solomon's Colonnade. It was about a 32,000 plus square foot area, so a very large area, and they worshiped there, they taught the word there, they prayed there, they ate meals there, they fellowshiped there, and they did gospel work there. But most notably, they continued with one mind or it could be translated they continued with a single purpose. Can you say that about yourselves as a congregation? We have a single purpose. It is He and He alone, as Count von Zinzendorf said. You see, here's the deep unity that is being manifested in this single-mindedness to corporately glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, to depend upon the fullness of the Holy Spirit, to love one another. You see, They were persisting in this. They were engaging in a single purpose of living out what it means for Jesus to be Lord in their lives. Does that not challenge us? Does it not affect us when we think about that early church and then we look at our lives and how distracted maybe we have become? I mean, do you allow the world or social media or endless activities or narcissistic self-gazing focus to distract from corporately living moment by moment to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? More than that, we need churches that continue with one mind as they gather. Brothers and sisters, I will assure you, the adversary of our souls attacks us at that very point to try to destroy and disrupt that. But not only first do we see this single-mindedness expressed in their gathering, but also in their table fellowship. It's good to know the Bible emphasizes the importance of eating together. I like that. That's not just a Baptist idea. This is a biblical idea, and we see it, Really, mentioned from Genesis to Revelation, where table fellowship is stressed to to be a place where relationships are renewed and truths are confirmed, and decisions are made and covenants are forged, and our stomachs are satisfied, and it's done with this single minded devotedness. And so Luke says that this early church was breaking bread. That's another way of saying they were eating meals together. So. We picture somebody taking a loaf of bread and breaking it. But they they had other things along with that. But they were breaking bread from house to house, and they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So they moved away from the east side of the temple, began to meander throughout the streets of Jerusalem from house to house, and they were gathering, and they were enjoying fellowship, and they were living life together. These were times of gladness, and so... They had lively meals, lively conversation and laughter and banter and affirmation and encouragement, and it was all with a sense of gratitude at what the Lord had been doing in their lives. It it was not a time of double-mindedness, a time of pretension, a time of calculated scheming, but they ate whatever food was put before them, no complaining, no pickiness, And they just enjoyed one another with sincerity of heart. No one was trying to use the table to strike a deal, to manipulate, or to curry favor. Relationships grew solid around the table. I I had the experience a few years ago in an Asian country where I rode with a group of national pastors up into a mountain area. And as far as I know, I was the only American anywhere for miles and miles around. And so I'm, I'm in this mountain setting... And it was known for their mushrooms. And we, we walked as we went to the restru- uh, restaurant. Um, we walked past these stalls that had mushrooms like I'd never ever seen before. And so it, we got to the restaurant, and there was a big pot with mushrooms in it. Um, of course, I was curious. I was very curious uh, about some of these mushrooms. Some of, them, some of them looked you know pretty strange to me. And there were also parts of a chicken in that pot that I'd never eaten before and wouldn't even consider eating uh, even in this present day but during that time there was these bonds of fellowship that were that were growing and those brothers had fun watching me try to maneuver uh, uh, chopsticks and I, I didn't do very well with that and I was quizzing them about, about mushrooms because one of them said, oh, by the way, this mushroom this mushroom are poisonous. And I said, we're going to eat it? He said, yeah, it'll be all right after it's cooked. I said, okay, and so I'm, I'm quizzing them about these poisonous mushrooms, and they saw me smiling while I was dipping around the chicken foot that was in, that was in the mushrooms, trying to avoid putting that into my bowl. But my love for those brothers grew because these were brothers that I knew some of whom might be imprisoned for their faith in Christ in the months ahead. I, I spent time teaching them later and I, and I thought how utterly humbling that I go back home and I'm free, but you preach the gospel and lead your church and you may end up in prison. But we talked about the grace of God. Uh, we, we talked freely about the gospel. We talked about persecution. There was gladness and sincerity of heart that came into focus around the table. So I ask you, Whose table of fellowship will you enjoy this week? But third, there was uh, this sense of unbridled joy that demonstrated their single-mindedness. We, we can't miss this sense of joy. You see the emphasis on gladness. They, they gathered, they took their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart. Uh, these were people that were happy in Christ because the Spirit of God was dwelling in them. I, I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote. He said, what credit to God is a miserable Christian? Gladness is not something you work up. Uh, you're not going to go to KJ and say, hey, give me 10 steps to gladness. He's going to say, I'll give you one. He's called Jesus Christ. It is in relationship to Christ where this gladness begins to be expressed in fullness of joy. Our joy is rooted in life in Christ. Joy is the overflow of life in Christ. It is the sure sign of the grace of God at work in our lives and the Holy Spirit filling our hearts. That's why Paul later in Galatians 5 says that joy is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. And he works this into the body of Christ. And there's a single-mindedness in Christ in which joy is shown. And then we also see it in worship. You'll notice they were praising God as they gather from day, from day to day. I mean, it, is that not what the heart feels when we see the beauty and the power of forgiveness? Is that not what we sense as our voices soar together in singing songs that give us a glimpse of the glory of the crucified, resurrected, reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not what happens, this sense of praising God, when we are filled with hope at the reality of the promises of God in Jesus Christ that are yes and amen? You see, the body gathered has, is, is gathered to worship in a lively, spirit-filled, reverent, exuberant, and there's no contradiction between those, uh, scripture-saturated, gospel-soaked, theologically robust, heart-bursting worship. You have to work at worship, brothers and sisters. You have to work at it, for this is where that sense of single-mindedness begins to work out in our lives as we gather to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. One final thing. This church, as they gathered, not only had a sense of awe, not only uh, had had the church uh, this sense of a lively unity or single-mindedness, but there was they were also mission-focused. Uh, you see that right at the end of this passage in verse 47. Uh, they were praising God. They were having favor with all the people. This is people out in Jerusalem. What happens when Christians begin to have favor? People begin to listen to what they're saying. And that that was happening. And so within the framework of these Christians living life together, gathering to worship, eating meals together, talking about the gospel, and just having normal conversation, they were having favor with people outside the body of Christ. They were staying on mission as the people of God. They wanted others to know the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. This wasn't a project for them. It was just life. It was normal life to talk about the one who had redeemed them from sin. And then Luke says, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Savior of sinners keeps saving sinners. And the language has Kind of two interesting uh, uh, focal points. One looks back. The Lord was adding, and then the Lord kept saving people. He kept adding those that, that he was saving. And the point is, it was the Lord doing all this. His people were simply living life in Christ. They were knowing something of the Spirit working in them. They were engaged, and they couldn't help but talk about Christ. That's a challenge to us, isn't it? Because we know there are people who look at us like, "Ah, you're crazy, you've lost your mind. Have you? Yeah, in the sense of the world, you've lost it. Thanks be to God. But you've gained something that you never lose. And so we talk about Him. But not only are we engaged, the Lord is engaged. He couldn't help but keep on saving people. And he still does. And so as we are busy living life in Christ and talking about him, the Lord is busy in saving and adding to the church. And and there's a vital truth that we mustn't miss right here. John Stott captured it so well. He said, he, the Lord, did not add them to the church without saving them. So there's no nominal Christians at the beginning. That is people that are Christian in name only nor did he save them without adding them to the church. So there are no solitary Christians either, no solo Lone Ranger kind of Christians. Salvation and church membership belong together, and they still do. I have had conversations with people that objected to church membership. Some treat it with disdain. But if Jesus is adding, he's adding to something, isn't he? He's adding to something that lasts when we look at all the institutions in the world, and some of those are wonderful and we enjoy them and, and they're they're great to to be around, but those institutions don't last forever. But you read the book of Revelation, and the church does. And the Lord added. And so if you've come to faith in Christ, the the journey only goes Christ's way when you're added to the body of Christ. And so you're gathered for that purpose so that you might invest your life in the local church, and the local church invests its life in you. So the Holy Spirit affects life in the church. Let's pray that He will not be hindered in this gathering of believers, that you might display the glory of Christ, that He might so fill you that you are useful to God's kingdom, and that you have a single-minded devotedness to the Lord Jesus Christ, as a people that belong to him gladly, and you're engaged in that mission of proclaiming Christ to the world. That's body life for the church. Let's pray together. Have you trusted in this Lord of the church, Jesus Christ? If you have not, I call you to him. I point you to him to repent, turn from your sin, turn to Christ, Trust in His death for you. Trust in His resurrection to bring you life. I'll point you to Him. And as followers of Jesus Christ and members of this body, I encourage you to think on these things. Here is this New Testament pattern. Are these characteristics marking you? If not, that's where we grow in our corporate sanctification. We grow and we apply the gospel. May the Lord help you to do that. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would apply these words from your word to our minds and hearts. We pray for grace that you might save those who are unbelieving. We pray for grace for believers to live in the fullness of the joy of Jesus Christ. And we pray that in Jesus' name.